CFC, man, you're a beautiful looking bunch. I don't know, I just really appreciate that uh, Craig's uh, losing his voice and empathy to me this morning. And uh, he kind of just didn't want to come up here sounding all beautiful. So when I got up sounding husky, that you guys would kind of find that difficult. So thank you for your servant-hearted leadership, Craig. Really, really appreciate that. I do apologize for my voice. Uh, I'm in an uh, interesting season of my journey. I'm traveling a lot and getting to share uh, what God's put on my heart in a lot of places, but it's starting to take a, a toll on my voice. Plus, after a few weeks of intense travel, a, a cold seems to be besetting me. So please don't be distracted by that. In fact, I think it's a God conspiracy, simply so I could get up here this morning and say, CFC, the best is yet to come. So, uh, yeah, they, right. Well, if we can have the ministry team come. Uh, no, <laughs> prophesied into your world this morning. Hey, can I just say, CFC, you should be absolutely proud of your team this week. You guys have been an incredible blessing to many. I know just from the moment I got here, as I said, a busy season in ministry, but your team started up the first night. I was lost in worship, sung too loud, couldn't manage my voice just simply because of the servant heart, the excellence, and just the spirit with which your team served all week was incredible. Why don't you give yourselves a hand this morning? And secondly, and for me, this is really, really important when, uh, when you carry an understanding of the kingdom is that actually great things don't just happen. They happen because great leaders happen. And I just really want to uh, honor this morning Craig and Trinity and uh, in, in ministry world like especially in New Zealand it's not a particularly big country and you bump into each other from time to time in different places I think I bumped into Craig in Melbourne last last year was it we were just bumped into a hallway had a quick chat and we've never probably done more than five minutes together you know before this weekend but just having the time with them just what incredible kingdom hearted leaders you guys are blessed and Honestly, I really believe that you guys need to not take for granted. I'm not implying they haven't whinged to me this weekend and said, please tell the church to love us. I think they feel loved. In fact, I've seen the way that they connect with their team all week. And I know that you love them and they love you. But can I just please say, don't allow yourselves to get familiar with great leaders. Because one of the most important things in the kingdom is understanding true honour. And honour is not something that just goes to leaders. It's something that goes to everyone. But you know what? What we, are fam- what we become too familiar with, we fail to honour. Which is simply, honour just means, I know it's got kind of twisted and contorted in Christian world sometimes, but it just simply means to give value to, to esteem, to appreciate, okay? And so make sure that you continue to honour them because uh, they need encouragement too. And they need to know that uh, you guys love them. And just really encourage that you. There's something significant in this church. There's something significant on them as leaders. I believe God's doing a new thing in the Church of New Zealand. He's uh, taking the small places to do something big. And I believe that, Pukekoe, you are right in the middle of that. I know from Timaru, I know that about uh, four people, you know, clap when he said Mike's here from Timaru because some of you guys don't even know where Timaru is. And uh, I know the feeling. I didn't clap when God asked me to go there either. And, uh, and, but it's amazing that God is able to take the small. In fact, he prophesied all through the Old Testament. He would take the simple to shame the, to, to shame the wise. In, in other words, God can take what people don't expect to do something so significant. I believe that's the call over your church. I believe that's the spirit that sits here. And I, I really believe we need to engage with that. We need to not wrestle all the time with, are we okay? Are we valuable? Are we significant? It's the biggest lie the enemy would bring at you is you are not significant because you're not what the world esteems. But God's kingdom is an upside down, back to front kingdom. It doesn't work like that. What everyone else looks at, they said, oh, look at that, a baby conceived illegitimately, born in a stable. Didn't stop him changing the world. And... uh, the same is true for Pukeko. You might be next to the most powerful city in New Zealand, but you have the most powerful God in you. And uh, you are not secondary to the Holy Spirit that's functioning in the megachurch in Auckland. It's the very same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living inside of you. Uh, the reason I say that about honour is really important. I just felt to share this with you briefly just before I kind of jump into my message, which is a simple message which will be a relief to most of you that have been here all week. Uh, How many know the gospel is simple, it's just not easy? Right? We sung it this morning, you know. Um, uh, Death to death and life for me. I mean, you can sing it in two lines. 
but it will take you a lifetime to really work that and live that out in your own life. And uh, one of the things that was really distinctive about the first century church was literally the way that they treated one another despite their social status. This is the heartbeat of honor. In fact, in the first century, the only place you would have ever seen the classes mixing together was in a Christian home or a Christian meeting because you only did things for people that could do things for you. Do you know that? It was an absolute status system, an absolute class system in the Roman world in the first century when the church was birthed and born. And so the only time you would see the wealthy mixing with the poor was in a Christian's home where they would literally invite people who could do nothing for them into their home and sacrifice to show them the love that Christ had showed them. Do you know that? This was literally a big deal. In fact, this was one of their distinctive markers in the first century that they would literally love everyone, not because of what they did, how much they earned, what suburb they lived in, where they owned real estate, what they'd done in their past. It was simply because they realized that everyone was made in the image of God and part of the solution to what God was trying to do in the world. He was valuing them because their values were sealed at the cross. And that's why honor as a community is such an important thing and such a distinctive part of the church's unique witness. So I encourage you, make sure every time you look at someone and you see them doing something good, every time you see them loving, every time you see them serving, make sure that from your lips comes encouragement because this is what we are here for. This is why we are different to the world. We only encourage people we think can, in the world's eyes, you only grease up to people that can do something for you, can help you get to the next step of the ladder. But church is different. We value everyone because their value was secured at the cross. Heaven was emptied to purchase you and me, not just the important people, not just the celebrities, but everyday people like you and me, who God would use. What a ridiculous idea. He would use all of us in the midst of our brokenness to be the change the world is waiting for. Amen. Hope you just caught a little bit of my heart uh, in that moment for the church. But I've got a message for you this morning that uh, I just believe is incredibly simple, but God really did lay it on my heart as I've just been praying about this over the last day or two to share with you. And uh, uh, I thought I'd begin just by introducing my family to you. You're like, okay, he comes from Timaru, and we can show a map at some other stage maybe and show you where that is. But it's just south of the Bombay Hills, okay? So just south. And uh, now we're two and a half hours south of Christchurch, and uh, so two hours right sandwich in between Dunedin and Christchurch, and uh, we love it there. It's a beautiful little port town, and very similar size to Port Coe. It's about 32,000 people, but God is doing something big there, and we're just grateful to be part of it. But uh, this is my family, and uh, uh, they, my wife would have loved to have been with us this week, but um, she was away with me last week, and we have four kids, and anyone got four kids in the room? Or more, you can put your hand up if you've got more. Uh, you'll know that life is far from straightforward, okay? It's, uh, it's relatively complex, but uh, these are the greatest things that God has ever given me. Uh, and that's uh, my family. That's my wife, Michelle, uh, on the right-hand side there on your right. And my right, because I'm facing this way as well. And uh, in the middle there is my daughter. She, this was taken two years ago. She was 10 there. Her name's Grace. She's now 12 and a meter 75. So uh, she is a very in-demand goalkeeper and goal defender. Right now, she's probably one of the tallest girls in Timaru, I think, and, uh, and uh, doing really, really well. And then Josiah on this side here, he is uh, uh, my oldest son. He's just amazing and uh, just got an incredible heart of compassion. Uh, stereotypical roles. Grace um, keeps the house in order. She's the second mum. Rules, girl, everything has to be organized. If you've got a plan as a family, in fact, if I'm traveling, I need to sit down with her a week before and explain the plan to her so that she can make sure everything stays uh, on track. And then uh, Josiah's just the most compassionate young man you've ever met. It's like when someone cries across the playground, it's like a bat signal to him. He's just like over there, like I need to come and save the world and sit and give them a hug and tell them they're okay. Just amazing heart. And, um, and then uh, I got Asher and Sophie at the bottom and they're twins. I said, uh, if you're in part of conference, you would have heard me say this, but Michelle and I were in discussions. She was like, hey, I'm part of a, we had three kids. She was part of a family of three kids. She said, hey, we should have three kids. It's clearly the number of the Trinity. It's the anointed number. You know, um, we need to have it. And I was like, I come from a family of two kids and two is just fine. We're busy, we're traveling. While we were having this discussion over a period of months, we found out we were having four. And so... God won, okay, so that argument, and, uh, and so that's our twins, Asher and Sophie at the bottom, 
boy and a girl, absolute blessing uh, to our lives. And uh, at the moment, at, sorry, at the time we found out, we thought, what are we gonna, on earth are we going to do with them? And now we wonder what on earth we would do without them. And so isn't family just an incredible blessing? And uh, we're just so grateful for them. We love them to bits. And so I just thought I'd give you just a glimpse of, uh, yeah, who's in my world. And uh, they're just absolutely incredible. Hey, uh, my daughter Grace there, she, uh, we've got a, a, three, uh, a 100-year-old villa on a hill in Timaru. That's uh, uh, what we bought when we moved there about 10 years ago. And uh, it's just an old, you know, you've probably got plenty of them around here. Have you ever got old villas around here? Yeah, plenty of them. Uh, and uh, so it's on top of a hill. So when we have earthquakes two hours down the road, you can pretty much surf in our kitchen. It's like, uh, it was amazing, the second big earthquake in Christchurch, we're in the kitchen, we're literally standing like this, and the whole house is rocking on its piles, because there's no concrete foundation or anything like that, it's pretty crazy, but we've got three, when we bought the house, we had moved down to ministry, we were just about, in fact, our second Josiah was only two weeks old, we bought this house, three bedrooms inside, and it's got a garage outside that had been converted into two bedrooms, and so we thought, oh, this is great for us, it'll allow us to kind of, me to have an office outside, plus a guest room for family when they come and visit, because we left family behind in Christchurch, and thought, oh, this is going to be great for us. But now, of course, we have four kids. And so we were kind of getting cramped for space. And we kind of thought, what, what's, what would be a great solution? Now, the room that is outside, uh, uh, the room, sorry, the, the garage is about three meters from the corner of my bedroom. The corner of my bedroom, about three meters out from that is the door to this first bedroom. So it's very close. There's kind of a veranda between it. It's not kind of like down the back field. But we kind of said to Grace, hey, Grace, how would you feel about having your own space? She likes to have her own space. She loves her sister who's four years younger than her, but they can't spend more than about two hours together without killing each other. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And we said, it'd be great for you to have your own space. And so we went and kind of uh, made that work. And we gave her a doorbell that... Uh, she could hit at any time. She goes, oh, because she's someone that just, because she likes to be organized, she does get a bit anxious at times. And so she's kind of like, well, Dad, what if, you know, someone was to, you know, come and what would happen? I said, if you feel at scared at any time, you just hit this button. And it's a button for a doorbell. And the, and the, the uh, other end of the doorbell is right by my head in my room. And, uh, and so I said, anytime you're scared, you just lean over and you just hit that button and go ding dong right in my ear, right by my pillow. And uh, I said, I'll be there in a moment. Now, look, uh, that was quite a, uh, that was something that came natural for me to do. I was kind of like, I want to protect you. I want to be there for you. But if I'm really honest, I probably haven't been uh, as sacrificial as I could have been on the parenting journey. Now, when you have two kids uh, and they're 20 months apart, uh, so two, yeah, two years apart. It's kind of good. You can be helpful. But my wife is basically Wonder Woman. I mean, she's at home right now running a church. She's preaching this morning, looking after our four kids. Uh, yes, preaching one of our campuses. And, and uh, so she's just someone who's incredibly high capacity. And so, you know, because uh, I wanted her to not feel threatened by my input into her parenting, there was times, and I'm just being authentic with you this morning, where in the middle of the night, they may have woken up with needs and I may have pretended to be asleep. Now, I'm sure that's never been done by anyone in the auditorium this morning. But when you have twins, that has to kind of change, you know, a little bit. because Mainly because she just won't give up with one nudge, okay? So it's like you've got these two kids. That, um, just so I was only 20 months old when we had the twins. And so you can imagine we had three under two. So if you guys could pray for me later, it'd be awesome. Um, people say, what was it like? We say, we don't remember. It just kind of, this was this kind of black hole in our history. But we know it happened because now they're older, which means they must have been young at some point. But uh, what happened is all of a sudden there's all of this need. And so Michelle would nudge me and, uh, and then I would kind of pretend I was asleep and then she would nudge me again. But now... Something, there's a, it's a different season, it's a different time. I've gone journey with these guys. They're not just babies that need to be changed and fed and, uh, and then put back to sleep, but they're real people, they're personalities, and over time you kind of get that bond and, you know, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my four kids. Nothing prepares you for parenthood, does it, parents? You look down, you realise that you're responsible for this life, for their development, and, you know, my oldest is being a girl, like, you know, I'm like every other father, I've considered getting a gun licence and... That's going to be important down the track, you know, really, really important, so that I can show it to whoever wants to take her out. 
I'm licensed to use one of these. And if that doesn't work, I'll have to mount it above the fireplace, you know, the weapon. And, uh, but uh, we go on this journey. She goes out to this room and she's got this, uh, this alarm bell. And uh, so she's out there for about a week and uh, nothing much happens. And we're, are you okay? And we've put lights out, sensor lights out, all that stuff there because she's, if she wants to get up in the night and go to the toilet, there's about a five meter walk she has to do to get directly into a toilet has an external door there and uh here i am fast asleep and uh, a weekend the bell goes ding dong it's in my ear and uh i hear it you know like it feels like time goes into slow motion here i am this guy that could not be woken for the previous 10 years in the middle of the night but now i am uh in my bed, one of the places I love the most. Does anyone else love their bed this morning? I often reflect on my own childhood and I think there's a couple of things I know now which I wish I'd known then. I think I would have enjoyed my childhood so much more. One is bed is not a bad thing. The amount of energy I wasted fighting my parents about going to bed. Now, if someone would only send me to bed early. I, I honestly would be far more diligent in the execution of those instructions. Uh, I love my bed. My bed is one of my wonderful happy places. Can I get a witness this morning? The second is time out. I wish someone would send me to a quiet corner for the amount of minutes of my age. I'm happy to take 37 minutes anytime you want. Anyway, give me 37 minutes of quiet with no responsibility, just myself to, just to think, just to have some quiet space. Remember, I live with four children. If I gave quiet 37 minutes with no agenda, I'd think I was in heaven. That's what the new heavens and new earth is going to be like, people. And I wish I had appreciated it earlier and not complained about five or eight or ten minutes, but I'd just hang out for someone to give me 37 minutes in a quiet room. Right? We, we get some perspective right now. So I love my bed. But this bell's rung now, this bell's gone, and all of a sudden it's like, man, someone I care for could be in trouble. My daughter, my 12-year-old, the one that I love so deeply, the one that I invest in, she, she could be in trouble. Someone might be going after her. You know, uh, what's going on? And all of a sudden it's amazing because my mind normally works so slowly when I'm asleep. But now every situation's racing through my head, and the ding hasn't even finished yet. You know, like I got onto it at the very first tone of the musical chime, and now all of these scenarios rolling out of my head before the chime is even finished and I sit up and I throw the bed clothes off this is costing me people my comfort I get out I'm ripping on my robe I'm putting it on uh, you know like not even doing it up properly so it's probably not totally appropriate but uh, and I'm opening the doors and busting through to go and find where she is go and find out that actually she was just looking for the light switch And touch the button. Why don't you jump in your Bibles to Second Corinthians? I said at the conference, if you haven't got a Bible, just ask a Christian next to you, they'll be happy to share with you. What's the other good one people say? I think uh, if you take notes, you're more likely to go to heaven, something like that. I think it's Rich Wilkinson Jr. says that's. that's uh, studies show that note takers are more likely to enter heaven. But uh, hey, if you go to Second Corinthians, this is a ball, uh, a, ball, a book that the Apostle Paul wrote. Apostle Paul, we know, is uh, responsible for about two thirds of uh, New Testament literature that we write. And here he's writing to the church in Corinth, one of the many churches that he's planted. And uh, to give you a little bit of context, he writes First Corinthians. There's some kind of edgy stuff going on in the church. There's people doing some weird stuff. We don't need to go into them this morning. They're not all totally appropriate for a family service. But uh, he's having to correct guys that are doing basically what they feel like. It's led to this idea of soft grace. They're covering up sins in the community that should be challenged in love, but essentially they're overlooking them. Now, underlying to all Paul's writings is he's um, fighting these guys called the Judaizers, the Judaizers who... I'm sure um, Pastor Craig has taught you about many times, but these guys are the guys that are always trying to make the Christians Jews, right? They're saying, hey, what you need is the mark of the new covenant. What you actually need is the Holy Spirit. But they keep saying what you actually need to do is go and be circumcised and not be Christians, but be Jews, 
Okay, so you need to now come under the, the, the legal weight. You need to come under the restriction. You need to come under the control of their interpretation of the law that God gave his people in the first covenant. But of course, Jesus came and he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden. I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke is just simply the Hebrew word for law. Okay, so God's law isn't um, uh, oppressive to us. It's life to us, right? It's freedom. His yoke is easy and his burden is like, come and hang out with me. Come, don't worry about trying to earn God's favor. Come and encounter God and then function from his favor, right? So that's what's going on. He's wrestling with these guys who are always trying to limit it down to you must do this. You must have everything a certain way on a Sunday. You must have the chairs a certain way. You must do the music a certain way. You must only sing certain lyrics. You must, uh, the pastor must do this and the pastor must do that. And that's what it means to be a Christian and saying, no, nah, no, nah. Paul's going, no, 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 no. They are trying to give you such a small picture of what you signed up for. What you signed up for is so much bigger than that. In fact, when you actually encounter it, all you can think about is being, taking your doing your part and taking your place in God's plan to redeem everything back to himself. And he's saying, these guys come in. So he's constantly, when Paul writes, uh, he, in all of his letters, he's essentially, the way he writes enforces what he believes. He basically starts with how good God is, what God's done and what he's freed us from. And then he says, now in light of that truth, now conduct yourselves this way. So because God set you free, this is the appropriate response. Because God's faithful and he's uh, emptied heaven so that you can have life and life in his name, live this way. He's always saying you work from grace, you don't work to grace. And so he's always fighting this underlying message of the Judaizers. But in 2 Corinthians, they've got this disunity in the church because, again, the Judaizers are back at it again. Now, we know how to do church right. Do it this way. Dial it back. Do it this way. Do it this way. And he gets, and Paul just getting frustrated. You can hear his frustration in his writing. He's like, you know, it's like how many times will I have, have to write letters like this to the church that we're not a legalistic organization, but we're a people that have encountered God and we are functioning from that encounter to go and be people who will put the world right. Does that make sense? This is Paul, or you see him all the way through. Don't, don't be old school Pentecostal, find a verse and create a doctrine. If you think God's told you something in your quiet time, search the scriptures to see if the weight of scripture backs that assumption up. Okay, it's what Paul said in Romans. He said the Bereans were more noble than all of the other Jews because after listening to him teach all day, they would go home and search the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. Let's not be a biblically ignorant generation. Let's make sure we are investing in the things that will shape us to be the people God's calling us to be. Amen? Well, your pastors are liking it anyway. <laughs> two, two happy people. 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 20. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. There's that simple gospel again, right? So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so now no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is... Uh, they. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old is gone and the new is here. Is that good news for anyone this morning? All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation, the idea that we would go out and help people who aren't already connected to God get reconnected with God, right? To reconcile the connection, the broken connection between humanity and and God, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. In other words, in Jesus' own words, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, that we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
So what he does, he's already established in this book that, guys, this is the gospel. He's always contending, saying, guys, don't think about that gospel that other people are trying to put on you. The real gospel is this. And he says it here again in 2 Corinthians 5. He's unpacking for us again. The gospel is this. Jesus died once and for all. The old is gone. The new has come. Let's live like the new has come. Let's remember that we don't have to live hamstrung by our past. We don't have to live in fear of our past overtaking us. We don't have to be like the people of Israel when they get delivered from Egypt, the God who delivers in a moment, delivers them from slavery, delivers them from their fears, delivers them from uh, that foreboding sense that this is all we will ever have and maybe God's forgotten about us. But in a moment, He releases them from their captivity. Their future is before them and all they see in front of them is opposition and all they see behind them is their past coming to get them. And they say, surely this is going to be where it ends. But God is the God of the impossible. And he makes a way where there is no way. And would you believe it? This, the very sea opens up before them. And God delivers them from their past. Aren't you glad the old is gone and the new has come? Did you know that's what Passover is about? Every time the Jewish people would meet in Passover, they would remember the deliverance of Israel. But they wouldn't just remember, they would look forward to a time when God would come and vanquish all of their enemies. They just hoped it was Rome. We know it was sin. Jesus would come and perform the fulfillment. A second exodus would take place and we would be truly free once again. Is anyone pleased the old is gone and the new has come? It's a new day. Jesus was resurrected on the eighth day, the day of new beginnings. The world had been refounded. The world had changed, but nobody knew about it yet. But we are in that new day. And that's what he's saying. Guys, don't be controlled by your past. Don't let your past determine your future. The old is gone. The new has come. So don't worry about living in the fear of your past, but embrace your role in the future. And let's get on with this job God's given us. You don't need to worry about shame anymore. God has taken that away. I don't know if anyone's been listening to it lately, but I'm loving the Hillsong song, So Will I. 100 billion. Has anyone heard it? You left the grave behind you, so will I. And as you speak, a uh, hundred billion failures disappear. You lost your life so I could find it here. You left the grave behind you, so will I. We need to get that, guys. We need to not be living in the oppression and the captivity of our past, but we need to move into the fullness of what God's given us. When we do that, we'll become the church. Not that it's uh, got uh, a group of guilty feeling people with a Christian name badge on them, but we'll actually embrace the reason God has put us here, to be the salt and light, to be the change. And he says this, he goes, guys, so, so don't worry about your past. That's behind you now. Christ has dealt with that at the cross. That was his cost for your freedom. And so now use your freedom faithfully. This is a tone of Paul's uh, writings. He's like, guys, come on. Uh, don't let the freedom that you have in Christ be of disadvantage to anyone else. In fact, your freedom should be an advantage to everybody else. You have the opportunity now with the fresh empowerment to go and serve the world that Christ died for. You get to serve them in such a way that when they look at you, they see him. Is that right? Is that the church? People would look at us and give glory to our Father in heaven. That we would be that living representation. He's like, you guys are ambassadors. So don't rest, just put that past behind you and start becoming who God called you to be. Not perfect, but be changed. Be someone who focuses on who God's called you to be. Don't listen to the, the, the identity that the past would try and put on you. You're, you're a new creation. You're now someone who's been called into the service of the Most High King. Who's paid your debt who's released you from the burdens, but now you've been brought into service. I love it. Paul says, he goes, uh, you know, when he's explaining grace in Romans 8, he's like, so now that I'm free, should I just go and sin and just see how elastic this grace is, see how far it stretches? And he said, no, I'm a bond servant. I'm someone who's been purchased for a purpose. He's saying here, guys, get back to your purpose. Your, your people who have called to go and love the world that God came and died for. You're meant to go and actually give the good news. How many gospel, gospel means good news? When we share it, when the church speaks, it should be to deliver good news to the world. Not bad news, not judgment. We sometimes think Jesus didn't do a good enough job. He came to save, so he sent us to judge. No, that's not how it works. We were called to represent him, not critique his finished work and decide we need to add to it. He says, you guys are the ministers, uh, you're, you're the uh, ambassadors, you're the ministers of reconciliation. You've been entrusted with this message. What Jesus started, he's called us to be part of finishing. 
a new world, uh, this, this redemptive movement. But the problem with that is sometimes it's easier to sit back and kind of give a, a commentary on the world and what they're doing right than it is to pay the price to go and love. You know, when that bell rang in my, in my room that night, after going and finding out she had touched the, trying to go for the light switch and touch the button, I get, home, I get back into my room. Michelle's like just waking up, the opposite of every other time something's happened in our, our journey. And she's like, what was that noise? I'm like, it was the buzzer. And she's like, oh, she said, oh, I got such a fright. And I said, why? She said, I've never seen you move so fast. In my whole life, I've never seen you move so fast. Paul says this. For Christ's love compels us. See, love isn't a, a concept. It's not an idea. It's an action. Love is not something we aspire to. It's something we do. It's something he is that by his spirit he empowers us to do. And to be, and it's no good for me to think that my daughter might have a future that's less than ideal in a moment like that and sit there and go, well, I really love her. I hope nothing bad happens. But the love for my daughter compelled me to get out of my comfort and to go and serve her need. Because real love isn't an idea. It's an action. She was in shock for about three days at the speed with which I stepped out of my place of comfort and ministered to the one that needed to, who needed me. I love her. It moved me to action. The place that she has in my heart gave her such value that I'd gladly leave my comfort behind. We're talking about Timaru in the middle of a winter's night. You need context here, people. I just feel like you're not nearly impressed enough. I mean, down our way, the grass crackles at that time of night. It crunches. Barely dressed, but there was no option. Because love has done its work in my heart. And so to not move when love calls me to move would be totally, I'd have to defy the nature that God has now put in me as a new creation, as a new man, a man who's being sanctified by the work of the Spirit, a man whose desires have been changed to be in alignment with his heart. I would have had to deny who I was to stay in my place of comfort when there was a desperate need that I could be part of solving. Because the love of Christ compelled me. The love for my daughter compelled me to move. You might say, well, Mike, if you look at that, all of that story is not inherent in that verse. I can tell you it is loaded in all of Paul's writings. Let's jump into Philippians for a moment. We've got these uh, Christian superstar verses, eh? Right? Uh, Philippians 4.13, I touched on that in conference. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The Fijian rugby team have it on their, uh, uh, the sevens team. Mind you, it did work for them. They've become like world champions of Maybe we should all do that. Anyway, but we've got all these verses, Jeremiah 29, 11. We love them all. We've got these amazing verses. And one of those verses in um, Philippians 1 is this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you're kind of like, it looks awesome on your wall or on a Facebook post or whatever, but I, I wonder if we really understand what's going on in this moment. You see, He's trying to resolve a unity issue in the Philippian church. And the way that he resolves it is with his example. He's saying, guys, if you've got influence, if you're people that have been called to do a job, I am your leader. So look at me and see how I do the job and then do it like I do it. And all of his letters, he essentially says in one way or another, imitate me like I imitate Christ. He says the same thing about five different ways in the New Testament. Basically, follow Christ like I follow Christ. So he's sitting in a prison, a first century prison. Oh my goodness. Could be anything from a damp cell with a steel bar to a hole in the ground with a grate over it. 
Did you hear that? Not like TV and yard walks and three meals a day. Like a hole in the ground with maybe a steel grate over it. And some of the Roman prisons, and theologians haven't quite nailed out what kind of a prison he was in, whether it was kind of their better ones for the day or whether it simply was a hole in the ground. You only got fed if people you knew came and fed you. So the state didn't take responsibility for that. So he's in a place of great affliction. He's in a place where life is not happy. It's not comfortable. He isn't having a crisis because he can't take his family on a cruise this year wondering where God is. He's actually suffering for the gospel. Why is he there? Because he shared the love of Christ. Because he was an ambassador for God's love. And he's sitting there in this hole and he's writing this letter. I don't know how he even get. it must be writing it during the day. He's just, this, maybe there's a bit of sunlight sneaking into his cell. Maybe, hopefully, and he's writing this letter. In fact, probably someone's just standing outside the cell writing because he wouldn't have access to those tools necessarily. But a scribe, one of the people may have brought him food and then began to jot down a few of his thoughts. And he, and he just talks about how um, you guys uh, might think it's tough to be in prison, but I rejoice. Because every time a Roman guard has to come and guard me, either stand outside my grate at the hole or if he's in one of these better prisons, every time this, this guy comes and sits and has to chain himself to me for eight hours at a time, the great news is, guys, I get to share the gospel with him. If you, some of you guys are thinking, that's nuts. I totally agree with you. I'm not there yet. God's doing his work in me. I, he hasn't finished yet because I still don't think that's my idea of a good time. And he's like, guys, celebrate with me. Because these guys are stuck there, they're paid to be there. Some of them may even be chained to me. They have to listen to me preach to them for eight hours at a time. And he said, because of this affliction, the kingdom of God is advancing. So don't feel sad for me, but be excited that the, the job God's given me, I am fulfilling for his glory and for his kingdom. That's crazy, eh? He goes on and then he says, well, I'm thinking about you guys and your moment of conflict, which he reveals in Philippians 4, and we don't need to go into that today, but I love it. He just sits here and he goes, so I'm kind of torn for, for you guys to pray for me. I've got this kind of this, this, uh, these two opinions in my mind meeting, and I just simply am trying to work out which one is the right thing to do. And so he says, to live as Christ. In other words, if I stay alive and I stay here and I get, keep preaching for these guards and doing all the stuff, then I'm in alignment with all the other things I've written to you, which is if you suffer in my name, you're going to be blessed because you're doing the work of God. So he's sitting there go, for me to live is, <clears throat> for me to live is Christ. So I get, to, I get the privilege of suffering for this gospel like my Savior did. And he goes, the other option is if I die, it's gain because I've been doing this for a little while now and I reckon there's some treasures stored up in heaven for me. There's some value that's bigger than my bank account, the size of my boat, whether there is a boat in my driveway, whether I own a house, whether I rent a house, whether I'll never be able to buy a house in my life, but actually there's some, something of more eternal value than the things that I see. He said, so for me, I'm just trying to work out which one's the right thing, whether I just perhaps, uh, no one's come and seen me with food for a while, so I'm just wondering whether I just maybe cut off the food and die here in the cell and go and hang out with Jesus, or whether I just suffer and have the privilege of being like my Saviour. In fact, just before this verse in Philippians 1.27, he says this, I urge you, dear brothers, live a life worthy of the calling. And so he says, oh, as someone who's trying to live a life worthy of the calling, I've got this tension in my world. And then he goes, basically, I'm, this is the Mike Co. paraphrase, so forgive me, but look up yourself, be like the Bereans, check it out when you get home and see if it's not faithful to the spirit of it. He goes, oh, so I've been thinking about it and I've decided it's better for me to live and suffer so you can see my example. You know, it's, uh, this is the right thing to do, the right thing for me to do. You guys are fighting over little issues in your community that affect your comfort, but you, you guys have zoomed in way too small. There's a bigger picture going on here. And what you need to know is that your leader in prison is still choosing to suffer, to lay aside his comfort, to truly love the people that God has put in his world. So my suffering and example is far better for you. So therefore, my decision is clear and easy. I'll keep eating. I won't die. I'll continue to suffer for my faith so you can see what it looks like to be a Christian. It's very quiet in here. So, well, Mike, that's a bit of a stretch. Well, go to Philippians 2. Because what's Paul's message? Love like Christ's love. So Philippians 2.1, it's one of the beautiful 
uh, pictures of the divinity and, and nature of Christ, it says this, that, that Christ emptied of himself. He said, I'm just doing this. Why am I doing this? Because the guy I follow did this. Jesus came, he emptied himself of his privilege. Real power doesn't oppress, it surrenders. He surrendered his rights as the God of the universe and he came in seed form. He came to love where he said he even, he even surrendered himself to death, even death on a Roman cross. You think, oh, well, okay, so he's doing it his way, but maybe it's only him and Jesus. Well, read on, Philippians 2. He goes and says, hey, basically, guys, I really want to send Paul to you because he's a true son in the faith. I've been trying to get him to come and see you guys and encourage you, but he's such a pain, he just keeps loving me. He keeps turning up, see if I'm all right. Keeps turning up, and I, I want to send him to you because he's a real leader. He's someone that's more interested in your welfare than his own. So now we've got Paul, now we've got Jesus, now we've got Timothy. And he's saying these guys actually get the gospel because they understand that the gospel isn't for them. The gospel in them is for others. So where he says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ compels me, we see all through Paul's writings to the church. So when he's saying it's better for me to suffer than to die, he's saying this is love that moves me to action. When he says, oh, oh by the way, Jesus did the same, he's saying it's love that moves Jesus to action. When he talks about Timothy, he's saying this is love that moves Timothy to action. He's more interested in what's going on for you than he is the oppression in his own life. The fact about Timothy, it says, I would have liked to send him to you sooner, but he's loving me and he's sick. He's sick. He's too sick to come, but he uses a little bit of energy to serve me. But he ultimately is grieved that I'd even be telling you he's sick because you'll put your focus to praying for him, but he wants to come and serve you. This is crazy stuff because real love moves us to action. Are you hearing me this morning, church? I don't bring this as a corrective word to you this morning. I bring it as an encouragement because you are a great church. You are a people that God has on the journey to be the salt and the light in this place of Pukekohe. I believe that right now God is reforming and restoring the church to its rightful place. You know, as we can't rely on culture for people to kind of come into church because it's the done thing, the people who are in church have to decide if it's their thing. Is this something I'm going to commit to? Is this something I'm about? Do I really believe the gospel? Is it really having its way on my heart? Is it really shifting the way I see? Is it really shifting the way I think? Because I believe there's going to come a point where there's going to be a group of people that sit there and go, hey, there's no two ways about it. The love that I have received has come for me so I can give it to a world that so desperately needs it. The world is waiting for the church. Bible says... All of creation groans for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. They're not people that argue about what they like and what they don't like. They're people that go and fight for who they love. They go and fight for a people that God loves so much he emptied heaven for them. And it's changed them from the inside out. You know, as a pastor, I've had some pretty uh, challenging moments. I remember... I remember the one, and I'll just share it just as a personal experience as we come to a close. In fact, if the musicians would love to join me, that would be great. Our time is gone. And... But uh, we had a single mother living down the road from us, uh, about 100 metres. She had a, a trouble with one of her sons. And, um, and I just said, look, hey, at any time he was uh, someone that was decided not to go on with God. He was about 16. He'd come bigger than her. And so there was times when they would argue and he would sort of stand over her or whatever. I said, hey, look, if you ever need Somebody come anytime, night or day, you just ring me and I'll come down and uh, have, have a conversation with him. At the time, I was doing a lot of weights and uh, I was a bit bigger than I am today and I casually invited him. If he would like to come and push someone around, he's more than welcome to come to my house. And, uh, and I said, look, anytime you need me, you just, just ring me and I'll come down. Like, I'll, I want to come and serve you and just help you on that journey. It's very difficult. We need to, you know, be supportive of those in our community that are in you know, difficult and challenging situations. And that's what love looks like, right? It's practical in so many ways. So one night I get a call after about two years after making that offer, I get a phone call. And it's one o'clock in the morning. And I was kind of like, I offered, you know. But when it comes, I'm kind of like, oh man, it's this lady. I saw her call her ID. And I was like, oh, hope she's all right. Hope everything's okay. I'm like, hello, you know, middle of the night. 
And she said, oh, hi, Mike. I just, um, you said a couple of years ago that if, if you needed me, if I needed you, that I could ring and you'd come down. And, and I said, yeah, of course. Like, just give me a moment. Don't, I, don't I give me a, a briefing. And she said, um, I went out tonight about eight o'clock to visit a new lady in the church. It was just another single mum. And we went and hung out. We connected well. We had an amazing time. And, and I only got home about 15 minutes ago. And what I came home to is my son had a party while I was out and invited a few friends over and they've come over and, and they've just had a good night. They've been, they've been drinking and it's for the most part been under control. It's less than ideal. And I'm kind of thinking, okay, it's cool. Like they need to come and kind of disperse it. And she goes, but, and she's quiet and she's frail and there's no power in her voice. And I'm thinking there's something more to this. And she said, so it seems like at 11 o'clock, a 17-year-old girl came and joined them. Who's coming and talking about how no one cares about her. Was talking about just a tough situation at home and the sense that her parents didn't really even care where she was tonight and why, why isn't she worthy of being loved. And she came home and instead of they having a beer or two, but she came home and she just found the liquor cabinet and started hitting the spirits and now she's lying dead on my lounge. Will you come? Will you come and talk to a group of young people that are absolutely destroyed? Came home, she was a nurse. She found her in the recovery position. They thought she was just sleeping it off and vomiting. And she wet her pants. She was just lying on this floor. And she, she came and straight away recognized this girl was dead. She called the police and then she called me. I walked down there and talked to a room of shocked young people. Certainly, I was happy to kind of talk to them. You know, certain times you just got no answers. You just have to be there. Sometimes we've got to be not like Job's friends, just go and sit and just shut up. People are suffering. Sometimes Christians try and answer too many questions we don't know the answers to. I just sat there and I just listened to these guys just talk about how they're feeling and just was able to love on them. I didn't go and go, here's my moment and stand up and preach the gospel. Just kind of tried to love them where they're at and they kind of said, but the mum was distraught. She said, Mike, I'm so glad you came. Thank you for coming. She said, would you, would you come? Would you come in and have a look? I'd love you to just pray over it. I'm like, look, you might look at me and think I'm spiritual, but there's a lot, a lot of carnal left in me. I do not want to go and see a dead 18-year-old girl lying on a lounge floor. This girl was a top student, one of our high schools. She was someone that everyone admired. Was, walked in that room and just saw this beautiful, beautiful girl laying there white. Just, she'd been dead for about half an hour there. Uh, detectives were wanting to take her away and they knew me. I'm the chaplain for the Mid and South Canterbury Police. And, uh, they actually, it was great. They were familiar with me. She said, would you come and just pray over it before they remove the body? I just feel like something needs to happen in this home. And just went in there and just sat and I just prayed. Not really for me. I didn't know what to pray, but just for the comfort of those who were there. And just remember thinking as I looked at this beautiful, beautiful young 18-year-old girl. Church needs to become the church again. Young people need to know there's someone that loves them more than anything, someone that emptied heaven for them. There needs to be a group of people that won't just think about themselves, but will grasp hold of the mission that they have been called to be a part of. I just sat there and I let my heart break. I let the tears roll down my cheeks. I let it hurt. I let it hurt. I let it break me. I said, on my watch, God, help me to be someone that calls the church to action. Let us never be in a situation again. Let us dream of a generation, not where we sit here and hope God does it, but we sit there and say, God, do it through me. God, come on me by the power of your Holy Spirit. Turn me into someone who's not just focused on themselves, but is focused on the others you've called them to serve. God, there shouldn't be this famine of hope and love in our nation while the church exists. Come on, church, step into our true calling this morning. Make a decision today. I'm not just gonna be someone who's consumed with themselves and put a Christian label on it, but I'm gonna pray the heart prayers. God, change me, transform me, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Brooke Fraser wrote, there's a beautiful lyric. God, break my heart. God, let me be moved by the brokenness around me. Every time Jesus was ministering in the Gospels, it's like, so I was like, let's go and do this thing. And it's like, he just, there's these little one line. It's like God's heart broke for the people. He looked at them and he loved them like, 
you know, he looked and loved them like the rich young man and he just is gutted at the brokenness in this man's life. He looks out at the 5,000 and he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. God is restoring the heart of love to the church that we might be the faithful people of God. Why don't you stand with me this morning, church? In fact, standing's optional. If you want to be part of the church God is raising up, stand up this morning. If you want to be a church that just doesn't want to play church, and I know you're not that church, but come on, let's make a fresh decision in our spirit this morning. God's purchased us for a purpose. When He called Abraham, He said, I'm not going to bless you so you can talk about how awesome you are forever. I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. In fact, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed because I've blessed you. Guys, we are the ears of that promise today. We have been blessed and the world is waiting for the blessing not to just flow to us, but to flow through us to them, to the dry places that they may again have life, have hope and be fruitful. Come on, why don't we reach out to God this morning, church? Lord, we're hungry for You. God, we need You. God, we don't want to be people who are stuck in ourselves. We don't want to be people that are shaped more by the the world than we are the Spirit of God. In a world that worships itself, worships its desire for status, for more, for wealth. But God, we are people who are driven by love. We know that money's not the most important thing in the world, but people are. Lord God, it's the world You came to save. God, as your agents, as your ambassadors this morning, God, we don't take that role lightly. But Lord, we remind ourselves afresh that this is the very purpose for which you have called us. God, we are a church on mission. I thank you for every surrendered heart in this auditorium. And God, my fervent prayer today would be, Lord, simply this. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Lord, let your love be known. Let the church again become a group of people that the world looks at and sees you. Don't see an angry God who just loves to point the finger and judge, but a God who emptied himself to reclaim what was rightfully his. The Bible records, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. May we be of like spirit. May we be of like heart. May we be of like mind as the people of God this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.